Hello. On today's episode of the Idea to Start a Podcast, we've got an interview. We haven't done an interview in over a year, but I thought this was a great one to sneak in. We've got Tom Eisenman, author of the most popular and recommended to me startup book of 2021, Why Startups Fail. He's also a professor of entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School. He's taught at the school for over 20 years and counseled, advised, and invested in a bunch of the uber successful companies that have come through HBS. His knowledge of how to build a startup is encyclopedic, and the book is fantastic. As you know, we're extremely picky and protective about who we bring on the show, and Tom was absolutely fantastic. We talk about how to validate startups with big upfront costs, how and when domain expertise matters, and how to start the gig economy version of a private chef. I hope you enjoy it. And before we start, if you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, we're interviewing for the final slots for our June 2nd cohort. Apply ASAP at gettacklebox.com if you're interested. Also, we tried something new and recorded a 35-minute webinar on how to validate and start a startup idea this weekend. I'll pop it in the show notes for anyone interested, or you can just head to gettacklebox.com backslash webinar. Now, on to our conversation with Tom. I'm Brian Scordato, and today we've got an awesome guest. Tom Eisenman, he's a professor at Harvard Business School. He's been there for 23 years, and he's taught topics that range across all parts of entrepreneurship and startups. A bunch of his students have gone on to build amazing businesses, and a bunch of others have gone on to build things that didn't work out. Today, we'll talk a lot about that second group. Tom recently wrote a fantastic book called Why Startups Fail, which is a compilation of what he learned studying businesses that didn't go as planned. It's an absolute must read. I, I loved it. I adored it. My book is filled with post-its, so I'm excited to talk through it. So, Tom, thank you for coming on. Brian, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So my first question is, why did my dating app fail? I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) My my first question is, uh, why did you have to write this book in the first place? So why is it so hard for us to pinpoint the reasons that something fails when it happens so often? Yeah, well, so when you teach entrepreneurship, at some point you tell your students that um, depending on how you define a startup and how you define failure, it's it's trickier than it sounds. <laughs> um, most startups fail, and and you'll see numbers that range anywhere from fifty percent to ninety percent. Depends when you start the clock running. Sort of, <laughs> do you have to do you have to be working on the startup full time um, to, to, to qualify, um, or 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 as a part timer qualify? And does it have to sort of shut down entirely in order to qualify <laughs> as a failure? Uh, but it, it, it's 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 a big failure rate. And I recognized sort of mm, seven years ago when a team I'd encouraged, uh, former students launched a business. I'd invested in the company, had a lot of confidence in the entrepreneurs. Um, they followed. Many of your listeners will be familiar with lean startup methodologies. Mm-hmm. They followed lean startup methods um, to the T, textbook perfect, minimum viable product, uh, and they still failed and Mm. and raised a million dollars of venture capital and spent it and and the business um, barely lasted a year. And I could point to a lot of things that might have caused the failure, but I couldn't pinpoint the root causes. That was a little disconcerting. So here I was an Mm. educator, uh, supposedly an expert on entrepreneurship, and I couldn't explain the most important phenomenon in my field. Uh, I was a failure at explaining <laughs> failure. So it put me on a path to sort of 
see were there um, recurring patterns? Uh, if so, could entrepreneurs spot them in advance and avoid them? Um, and if, if despite their best efforts to do that, they still failed, is there a way they could fail better, um, hmm. less painfully um, learn from the experience, bounce back stronger? Really interesting. Um, I think there's the idea of failing less painfully is a really, really interesting one, a little bit of a soft landing. If And it seems like something when I was reading your book, it really stood out because we don't design for it really, but if so many startups are failing, we should design for it. Um, so the, the first thing I want to dig into is that, that lean methodology piece. Uh, so, so many of our listeners and so many people pursuing startups think that they are following lean methodology. And I'm curious about the, the mistakes that they might make and the things that the false paths that they might go down where they think they're doing the right thing, but they aren't, did things really stand out there? Yeah, for sure. I, I think for early stage startups, this is probably the leading cause of death. Um, mm. um, um, what, what I call a false start, same as in track and field or swimming, when the athlete in, a, in an effort to sort of get an edge literally jumps the gun and, and, mm. and as a consequence gets penalized. The, the startup version of that is an entrepreneur in her zeal to get going. Entrepreneurs are all about a bias for action, and that's important, is eager to build the thing and sell the thing as fast as possible. They've got in their mind uh, a vision for the product. And, and think, think of that as a problem-solution pair. Here's the problem I'm going to solve. Here's my solution. And they're sure they've got the right problem, and they're sure they've got the right solution. And they skip a whole bunch of upfront research that actually is part of, the, of, of, of true lean startup methodology. They, they focus in on the parts that are that Eric Reese made famous, the minimum viable product and the pivoting and so forth. And they launch the thing, they pivot um, based on customer <laughs> feedback, and they pivot fast and they feel like they're running lean. And they are in some respects, but they've left out the important first step, the sort of Steve Blank part of the formula. Steve Blank sort of urges entrepreneurs to get out of the building um, before they start engineering work. And, and talk to potential customers and really figure out if you've found a problem worth solving. Have you, have you found a strong unmet need? And um, it's harder than it sounds. I mean, first off, some people are introverts and, and talking to strangers is hard. And then talking to them well and actually learning something because most entrepreneurs are wired to pitch, right? So uh, a conversation mm -hmm. with a potential customer very quickly turns into, here's this thing I wanna do. Um, will you buy it? And the answer to that, um, when you're confronted with a crazy person, because a lot of a, a lot of aspiring <laughs> entrepreneurs come across as sort of possessed, they are. Um, and um, some people just to humor them or make them go away or just make them feel good because they feel sorry for this person who's obviously so stressed out and wound up, um, will say whatever you whatever they think the entrepreneur wants to hear. And so pitching prematurely is bad. Leading questions are bad. There's a real art to to um, to focusing on the problem and not the solution and, and 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 getting reliable feedback. And so these entrepreneurs skip all of that. Um, they also skip. There's a, a stage in, in any design process of of thinking through multiple solutions, getting feedback on all of them. Um, before you overcommit to any one. And, and, and by the way, the, the best way to overcommit emotionally is to spend a lot of time refining a prototype. And you, by the time you're done doing that, you love it. 
um, mm. and, and you're less likely to abandon it. So, so they don't study the problem. They don't explore multiple solutions. They dive in, um, create the first version of the product. It might hit the mark. Um, sometimes entrepreneurs get lucky, but it's more likely to miss because you've skipped that upfront work and you can pivot away from that. That's the lean part that they think they're doing. That's why they think they're running lean, um, mm. because they're pivoting, but, but you've wasted, I mean, it typically to build and, 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 and go to market is going to take four months for most products, uh, you know, some number, I mean, some are faster, some are slower. Um, but if you've only raised, if you've only got in hand a million, uh, excuse me, 12 months worth of runway, how much capital you've raised, or if you're bootstrapping your personal savings, um, and, and you waste the first four months on a failed version of the product, that if you had just invested three weeks upfront, hmm. you know, that's a good trade, right? Three weeks um, to buy four months um, is, is a trade that most entrepreneurs ought to be willing to make, but they skip it. Mm. It's so interesting. And, and there are um, there's sort of two books that come to mind that were really helpful for me for each of these. One by Steve Blank, who you mentioned, Four Steps to the Epiphany, I think is a really good book for that. Um, and then on customer interviews, or if people are looking for a good book, and at least in my opinion, there's a book called The Mom Test, which I think is oh, really well. Oh, I love well. it. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Um, it's my, it's both, um, the, the blank book is hard to read. It's, it's not fun, but it's important mm. stuff. Um, so I'd encourage everybody to do that. But the, um, the mom test is underappreciated. It's a small, short book. And, and uh, uh, we force it on all the MBAs who want to be <laughs> entrepreneurs. Um, and it's very readable. Um, it's, it's brilliantly done. And, and just sort of so, so uh, listeners know um, what we're talking about, um, the mom test is, is, is the thing you don't want to do. It's basically <laughs> going to your mother and asking her, um, do you like my idea for a startup? Because the answer, of course, is son, <laughs> I love everything you do because um, you're my child. And, and uh, yeah, so, so well. Um, the, awesome. the, the book is full of practical advice on how to run these interviews and avoid leading questions and, and find the, the right interview subjects. Yeah, I'll pop it in the uh, in the show notes. It's a great one. And, and to that point, I think my mom texts me every week asking how she can review the podcast again. I'm like, Mom, you already rated it. You already reviewed it. You're good. Um, so a question on that customer discovery, uh, on that, that piece of the, the puzzle that people are missing. How do you or have you found anything that that allows entrepreneurs to kind of keep themselves honest because the it feels like you're make, taking action if you're going out and like hiring a development shop or like you know th that feels like you're moving forward whereas interviewing for a, a bunch of different potential use cases doesn't um do you find anything there yeah no um, this is important you know i'll cycle back on that last point so the 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 because I know a lot of a lot of your a lot of your listeners are are working on an idea while they still have a full time job. Once you quit mm -hmm. that full time job, the meter's running, right? You're either burning through your personal savings um, or you've raised some money and you're 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 burning through that, and that puts a lot of pressure on to build and launch the product. So, so fall, a, a, a leading cause of the false start is just the urgency that the entrepreneur feels because the meter's running, but so a lot of my MBAs are not technical. They, they hear uh, correctly that having great product is super important. The thing they're good at is networking. Um, and, and so they know how to work a network and find somebody who is technical. That could be a technical co-founder. That could be a vice president of engineering. It could be you just outsource, you know, you hire somebody to do it. 
And again, once you, those people are expensive in one way or another, and, and what they know how to do is build. So um, the non-technical founder brings on the technical resources and, and feels a compulsion to put them to work. So, mm. so an important piece of advice is just basically like really take your time before you commit to bringing on the engineering resources. It feels like something that's really important to do, and it is, and it's important to get that right, but it's also important to pace it. Um, and, and so um, I, I, I don't know any other way other than sort of lecturing the entrepreneur on just the importance of, of, of a good, thorough, rigorous design process. You know, and, and, um, and so if you can find somebody in your network who actually understands this discipline of, of user experience design and the kinds of things that a good designer will do up front when, when thinking through a, a product, um, and getting feedback from them on whether you're doing it right. And, 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 you know, you can overinvest in anything you can, you, you know, you can hit diminishing returns. And so, so there's, there is some judgment that's required and some art. So I, I like so many things for an entrepreneur, just finding an advisor who can tell you whether you're on the right track, I, I think is the way to go. Mm. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's uh, good advice. Um, in the book, you mentioned or, or sort of talk through, I guess, a use case or a case study. I guess that's the HBS uh, way yep. of thinking about it. Um, of Quincy, uh, a startup that had an interesting challenge with lean methodology, and one I think it's worthwhile to talk through. Where you, you, if you want, you can describe the business a little bit. But I thought it was interesting that they had this very big upfront cost of manufacturing, and so their lean tests weren't actually a great uh, indicator of whether they would be successful down the road. And I'm curious about that tension and how you think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, um, I think this is an important point too. So Quincy Apparel was founded, th th this is this is the catalyst for for all this work is, is the mm. story that I, that I related at the, at the beginning of the podcast. St started by two of my former students and the idea was to provide better fitting stylish and affordable work apparel for young professional women. And, and you can get two out of the three. Usually you, you can <laughs> get better fitting stylish, but not affordable if, if you're willing to sort of pay a thousand dollars for um, something that will be tailored and you can, you can find affordable stuff that doesn't fit very, you know, so, so basically they were trying to do it all. And, and it's ambitious. And, and, and so the secret sauce was folks who were familiar with men's suiting, you, you have multiple measurements, chest, sleeve length, and so forth. So they were going to do the same thing for women's clothing. And um, it turns out there's a reason why women's clothing comes in size six and size eight and size 10 and not sleeve length <laughs> and hip size and, and so on and so forth. It's just really hard to manufacture. Um, mm. And so the, the, the part they did beautifully, as I said at the beginning, textbook perfect, was the validating demand for the concept. So they ran mm -hmm. trunk shows, which in the fashion and apparel business is you, you literally bring a trunk full of samples into a room and you round up 30 people who might be interested and you see if they buy the stuff, try it on, something and the samples can be can be fit um, and place pre-orders, which is which is the gold standard with, with minimum viable product testing, right? Will somebody actually pay for the thing? And people did. They, they the, the women loved the apparel. They bought it. Um, they bought it in in um, convincing numbers, and so they raised a million dollars. Hoped to raise a million and a half, but could only raise a million and a half. Part of the failure story, and set out to now. Neither founder had a background in apparel 
design and manufacturing. Um, knowing that they, um, and, and it turns out they discovered um, without having done enough upfront research on the, the sort of ins and outs of the apparel design and manufacturing, there's a whole bunch of, of steps that happen in sequence or in parallel um, that have to be done right and have to be coordinated carefully by specialists who really know. So fabric sourcing, fabrics have different elasticities, um, pattern making, pattern mm. cutting, quality control. There's sort of s- several more. And uh, these in apparel companies, these will be done by specialists. So they hired these people out of existing apparel companies, veterans, who had no feel for the rhythms and chaotic um, culture of an early stage startup where everybody sort of mm. dives in to put out whatever fire is burning hottest. These people would um, quite literally sit on their hands while there was some problem over another area and say, I don't know how to do that. Uh, my job <laughs> is, is pattern cutting. They hired for skill, but not attitude, which was a big problem. The product, because it was hard to manufacture, the rate of returns was 35%, which is pretty typical for e-commerce that has free shipping, but mm. their target, because the value proposition, the promise was better fit. So if your mm. fit is average, that's not so good. And, and, and it's very expensive to process the returns and sort of ship a new version of the thing. And, and you know, can you, can you salvage the original version if it's been tailored to some extent? So anyway, they burned through their cash. Um, this is a business that it's seasonal. So you, it, you, mm. you produce the inventory upfront and hope that you've hit the fashion trend correctly. Um, and you produce it in these big lumps. So they're faced with this um, capital intensive business. Uh, they made the mistake of raising money from venture capitalists who, you know, they sort of thought this was a tech company, a direct to consumer huh. company. They'd seen Warby Parker and Bonobos and businesses like that and sort of thought this was another one of those. And in some ways it was, but the expectation was grow, 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 you know, build the inventory, sell. And, and, and they had strong sales. Um, they had good repeat purchases, but they just hadn't fine-tuned the operations to the point where where they could um, reliably deliver on the fit promise. And they were making progress, but they couldn't make enough couldn't make enough progress fast enough to raise the next round. They raised initially from VCs that were too small or unwilling for whatever reason to bridge, that to mm. provide a lifeline when when the capital started to get low. So the business died after a year. Raised all sorts of questions for me about what. You know, was I teaching the right stuff? Because they they had done the early part. They'd they'd actually done customer discovery. They avoided the false start. They mm. they produced the right product. But it turns out what you can't you, you know an assumption. So lean startup is all about um, having assumptions and then testing them. A thing you can't test, you simply can't test, is whether you can create a a um, production process as um, specialized mm. and complicated as apparel manufacturing. Um, you, you can create samples and they did that for their trunk shows, right? These are literally handmade um, versions of the product. But once you move into a factory and you have all these steps in the production process, the only way you can prove you can do it is to do it. Um, so there is no lean test, no minimum viable product test to prove you can execute on, on a business like this. And in this way, mm. it was very different from from a lot of other businesses that are, say, more software based, where you just sort of assume that, you know, as long as you build a working product, um, it, it, it'll move. Um, so, yeah, so that, so so lean startup can't solve everything. And how do you I've, I have a couple of questions on the back of that, um, that story, which is 
interesting and <laughs> not demoralizing, but it's, it's kind of smacks you in the face with a little bit of reality. I'm curious about that. How do you go re and de-risk something like that? Is it just over-indexing on domain experts, flexible domain experts, or is it, yeah, did, did you come up with anything? You know, yeah, um, it, the whole episode gave me an appreciation for how domain expertise is really important in some startups, but not others. It, it's, mm. it's quite surprising. I had been... The, the students who launched, my students launched Rent the Runway. Some some listeners will be familiar with it. Mm. It's now a, a late stage startup, $900 million valuation and started renting party dresses. The idea mm. was instead of buying this dress for $800, probably wearing it once because once people see you on Facebook photos, you, you're not going to do it again. So it goes into the closet. <laughs> instead of buying it, you'll rent it for $100. And that turned out to be a really good idea. And they also did, by the way, um, brilliant lean testing up front. They, these were not fashion industry veterans. They knew that mm. they completely, you know, one was an investment banker. The other had worked in sports marketing and hotels. And yet, you know, there they were. Um, the thing went off like a rocket and they ran it brilliantly. Um, my Quincy founders were a year later at school and it had actually <laughs> done project work inside Rent the Runway. So I thought I had wow. another one. You know, yeah. <laughs> my, my first pair was doing great. So the second pair looked just the same. Um, no apparel industry experience. That wasn't a problem with the Rent the Runway. And it turns out that renting apparel and making it, um, designing it and making it are two entirely different things. And so mm -hmm. I learned, and, and so then the question is, when you have one of these businesses that requires domain expertise, there's another example in the book, it's a later stage failure on uh, online re, um, retailing of home furnishings. So think of a couch, you know, look mm -hmm. around you, couches, lamps, uh, tables, chairs, and this stuff is really hard to ship. Um, mm. The warehouse and ship and ship has to arrive the morning you took off from work. It, unlike your Amazon books, if they come two days early, you're delighted. When if your couch mm. comes two days early, you actually have a big problem on the curb. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and and so domain expertise there turned out to be super important and and the root cause of a, of a failure. But in other businesses, it's not. You know, if you think of mm. Jack Dorsey starting Twitter. What, what did he need to know? I mean, he designed, he, he needed some concept, which he had, and he needed somebody on the team that could engineer the thing to work at small volumes. I mean, eventually he had specialists who can scale the thing to hundreds of millions of customers, but you don't need that at the beginning. You, you need good enough design um, to, to go along with the good idea, but it's a pretty forgiving business in terms of domain expertise compared to Quincy. So, so the way you get that expertise, I mean, you try to find a co-founder who's got it. They tried the Quincy founders and, and mm. for a bunch of reasons, the people who uh, could bring it um, weren't inclined to team up with these founders. You can get it from the right investors and, and advisors. Um, and they did some of that. They probably should have done more. What they really should have done, they, they were working in consulting before they took the plunge. They probably both should have just spent another six months on their consulting jobs, earning a healthy salary, mm. um, studying the production process and sort of realizing they were going to have to balance skill and attitude in, in these early hires. And then just bringing somebody on board, you know, needn't be a co-founder, but if they had found a, um, a seasoned industry person who um, 
knew how to find people who actually would have the right attitude for a startup and had a network. This is important. So if, a, if, a co if you need domain expertise and the founder doesn't have it, um, their personal network is not going to be rich with good candidates. Mm. Right? They don't know people. And when they're recruiting, they're not going to have the ability to, to sort out wheat from chaff to, to actually mm. spot people with the talent. So you got to have either somebody on your team who can do that or advisors who can do that for you. Um, mm. But that's a rough one. And uh, um, so, you know, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to sort out when domain expertise is super critical and, and when it isn't. It's it's a real it, that like a, it's funny you bring that up because I have a whole three or four questions on that and sort of the because you hear all the time that, you know, when a startup's successful, you might, and there's a ton of survivor, survivorship bias here, but you know, no one internally, no one in the industry could have ever thought of this external solution, but then. Yeah. And, and by the way, the Rent the Runway founders um, use exactly that explanation for their success. <laughs> it's like, we could break the rules because we didn't know the rules. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. And one of our, one of the companies that have come through Tacklebox, it's one of the most successful companies we've had started as a company called The Lobby that was helping out. He had a ton of domain expertise. He had gone to a non-core um, undergrad school and had sort of hustled his way into a top investment banking job, which normally doesn't happen, and was basically helping facilitate that transaction for people at non-core schools to speak with, get introduced to, get warm intros to, so they, they could find their way into an investment bank. And he sort of went through Y Combinator with that, and it didn't end up working out. And he pivoted to shipping logistics from Mexico to the U.S. And that is the company that's exploded. And he didn't have industry expertise there particularly. Or wow, really that's any. Yeah, there, there yeah. are some. I'm, I'm now starting to spot them. I mean, I've, I've developed a healthy respect for food and beverage startups. Mm. That, that's a place where it's really complicated and, and sort of knowing what the... Um, you know, how to sequence started Whole Foods and, you know, then move to Kroger and when you're ready to do that. And boy, um, full of peril. And then throw in the extra variability of perishable. <laughs> yep. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, exactly. And, 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 in, and physical inventory, physical inventory always, um, uh, it, 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 it's a good marker for something that can, can come back and bite you. Yeah. Um, so on that last thread, I think you, there's a term that I, that I like from the book where you talk about genuine pain or desire, like trying to find genuine pain or desire. And I'm curious if you came in, um, I know you studied uh, startups that had failed, but also startups that had almost failed and then didn't. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious if there were any startups that you found that sort of backed their way into the right customer where they didn't start with the right customer, sort of did the sprint of pivoting and then through that sort of maybe having a bunch of different customers come in, they were able to identify and focus on one that then drove the business forward? Or is that something that can't really happen? Oh, no, it happens all the time. I, mm -hmm. I would say if you took um, if you took 100 successful startups, I'd be amazed if it wasn't sort of 70 or 80% of the time. Um, oh, well. They, they were doing e either with a different product for the same customer target or or um, a different customer segment with some version of the original product. Yeah. Th I mean, those kinds of pivots. Um, and sometimes they're even more pronounced. I mean, YouTube started as a dating site, um, <laughs> you know, vi video, they were going to put video to work in the dating process. Um, Twitter started as a, um, 
as a podcasting a suite of tools for podcasters and, and sort of a matching marketplace. So, yeah, pivot pivots are um, and, and um, PayPal um, started as a way to beam information between Palm Pilots. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just all over the place. Um, and the question is, you know, Eric Reese, I think, has a wonderful definition of runway. You know, we tend to think of it as how many months do you have before your capital runs out or your savings run out if you're bootstrapping. His his version of it is how many pivots can you do? <laughs> and, and remembering that um, it's not only conceiving the pivot, but it's actually um, running with the new version long enough to see if it's actually working or not. And sometimes that takes repurchase, right? So you don't always, and that's one of the problems with with um, a lot of lean testing, is um, you get an indication whether somebody will buy the thing, but many businesses won't survive unless the person will buy the thing over and over and over again, and mm. that just takes the passage of time. Mm. So it's such an interesting way of thinking about it because we hear about so many startups that, you know, design a pair of driving gloves or something and have raised $65,000 and 55 of it's going to the first run of this first product. That's pretty untested. And then you're kind of out of pivots. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. One pivot, no pivot, zero pivots in that example. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm interested in persistence with that in mind. Um, was it, were you able to find out when it's clear that a founder should quit and they're sort of banging their head against the wall for something that won't ever work or when, when there is possibility or, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that. Yeah. So um, when to pull the plug is really one of the, I think the hardest decisions an entrepreneur has to make. The, the hardest on the other hand is how fast to grow because um, mm. a, a lot of entrepreneurs get in trouble by, by trying to grow too fast. But if, if, if you're struggling and the, and the reason, so, so a lot of the entrepreneurs that I interviewed for the book who failed would say that if you ask them, do you wish you'd shut down earlier? Um, a, a pretty large fraction of the time, the answer was yes. Yes. I wish I mm. had, um, I ran the thing too long. Um, of course, there's always some hope for a miracle, but, but the, but the, the, the chance of a miracle was getting vanishingly small. I would have been better off moving on to a new project. My um, employees would have been better off moving on to new projects. I could have given some money back to the, you know, you, you don't love 20 cents on the original dollar, but it's better than zero. Um, I, you know, I could have paid all my vendors in full. My mm. lawyer <laughs> could have paid in full. <laughs> and, and so... Um, but but it's important to understand all the reasons why people run too long. I, I, in the book, I call it running on empty, um, mm. and and there's a bunch of reasons. And 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 I think your aspiring entrepreneurs in the audience should be aware of this so they can think this through. So one is, um, I mean, probably the most important is there's ups and downs, and and it's easy to be hopeful and to focus on the wins. There's always a mix of wins and loses. It's rare. The failure is rarely abrupt. I mean, sometimes there's one decisive customer who goes away and then the business is dead, but usually it's, it's, it's a pattern of, of ups and downs and more down than up, but you can hope uh, for a miracle and people do. The second thing is there's just a whole bunch of moves you make when you start to struggle and it takes time to play them all out. The first mm. move is, um, Try, trying to raise money from new investors, and that takes weeks, um, sometimes months, and people will string you along, like if you meet this milestone, and, and um, 
when that doesn't work, there's always a pivot in the background. Like we talked before about how pivots take time to prove out. The further you are along, the more, the bigger a deal a pivot is, right? If you if you've actually made and you're selling a product and you've got a team doing X and you suddenly have to teach all your employees, explain how to do Y, explain to existing customers that the product is changing, you know, come up with new marketing messages and so forth. It's steering a big ship um, is is harder. So pivots are, are resource intensive and they take time to figure out whether they're working. Um, when you can't raise the new money and, and you're waiting to see if the pivot works, you go back to the existing investors and try to figure out if they will bridge um, mm. and they will hem and haw and they'll fight with <laughs> each other. Um, some might be willing to do it, but usually it takes the approval of the board of directors. Often it'll be a down round sort of um, issuing equity at a share price lower than previous rounds. And mm. um, sometimes the only investors willing to provide a bridge will demand a very low share price, a big chunk of the remaining equity because they're taking on a lot of risk at this stage. And other investors are neither willing to go along, put their capital in under the same terms, nor to approve the deal. So you're at a stalemate and, mm. and it takes time to work through the poor, poor entrepreneur is just sort of pulling mm. his or her hair out. You, you, you try to sell the company and this is um, false hope because basically um, what competitor doesn't want to see what's going on inside your company? So everybody's <laughs> going to talk to you. Uh, oh. Everybody will speak to you and they'll string you along to learn more. And, and some of them may be genuinely interested in the longer you take, they want to buy you wounded, but not dead. Right. So they can get, a, <laughs> get the benefit of your assets and your people. But um, and so that takes time. And so all these things take time. Meanwhile, um, you um, are inclined to defer because you love your team and they're depending on you for their livelihood. I mean, literally, um, they're living and their medical benefits usually come from you. Um, people were counting on you. Investors had faith in you and you don't want to let them down. Your identity as an entrepreneur is persistence, right? Entrepreneurs are, are supposed to be gritty and persistent. So if I throw in the towel, am I a bad entrepreneur? So all of these reasons, and, and sometimes you don't even have anybody you can talk to. And by this stage, um, I hope I'm not scaring your aspiring entrepreneurs off. <laughs> you've probably done damage to a lot of personal relationships. Your friends, um, you've been working 70 hours a week. Um, you've you've like missed the third dinner in a row with your good friends. So they're getting impatient and maybe have given up on you. Your spouse is probably um, not sympathetic anymore. And, and, um, and you can't talk to your investors about the trouble you're having honestly and openly if you're trying to raise a bridge round from them. You can't talk to your employees honestly and openly about what's going on because if they really confronted it, they might leave and that would just accelerate the mm -hmm. inevitable. So unless you're in a at a place like your accelerator or you're in a YPO group with peers, you don't really have anybody you can talk to about what, what you're wrestling with. So all of these forces conspire to sort of let people hope that, that for a miracle, hope for a turnaround, but it usually doesn't come. And, mm -hmm. and, and the real um, pressure on an entrepreneur ought to be to try to at least confront reality in time to do what I call a graceful exit. Um, basically one where everybody who's owed money gets paid. Your employees get paid. If customers have put deposits down, they get the, the thing, the deposit refunded. Investors get at least a little bit of money back. Vendors who you've, mm -hmm. you've purchased from get paid. And an, an entrepreneur who um, exits gracefully, thoughtfully, and who can can 
demonstrate that they've learned something from the experience, own it, sort of realize what mistakes they made and what they'll do differently next time, can usually, at least in the U.S., sort of bounce back stronger and be perceived as investable again. You know, mm. e- either uh, team members will join you and investors will will respect you and and, and sort of give you another shot. Mm. It's it's the less graceful exits or the people who can sort of are so defensive, they, they look like they blame everything on everybody else and, and don't take any ownership of what happened that gets stigmatized more and mm. inappropriately. Yeah, and that, that resonates a lot with, I remember shutting down my first company and, and sort of going to my invest, it was the worst, felt like the worst day of my life. And it might've been saying, you know, I, I lost all your money and we're done. And this is that. And, uh, I just remember how multiple investors were like, okay, well, I'm excited to invest in your next thing. And it was sort of like, you sometimes forget that this is, this is an outcome that happens a lot for investors. It's not, it's the end of the world to you, but it's not necessarily the end of the world to them. It was the likely outcome to them. I thought that part of the book was fantastic. Um, yeah, so so I have one more one question on the mental side of things, and then I want to get into some startup examples. How do you, and you sort of hinted at this here uh, just now, how do you balance as an entrepreneur, and, and maybe the answer is it's hard and you don't, but um, balance pitching one version of ev- of your life to everyone and then internally either keeping honest with what is actually happening or, or staying sane through that. I'm curious if you came across any, anything helpful there. Totally. I, I, I think it's one of the, it's, it's what makes being an entrepreneur so fascinating um, is the, is this need for balance. Um, you got to sell. Storytelling is super important. The reality distortion field can be an enormous asset, sort of the, 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 the ability to sort of mesmerize people with your vision and get them excited about your vision and and get them to sign up and and commit their time commit their resources but taken too far you can invest so much emotional energy and so much ego in in telling the story and selling the story that if the universe tells you it's time to change you may be reluctant to change you may not see the need um, the reality distortion field, in effect, folds back on itself and sort of hmm. um, you can't actually perceive instead of you shaping reality, you can't even perceive it now. And so that's the challenge. It's sort of how to be show that conviction and yet remain flexible and open. And and and, and I, I, I don't have any secret formula for that. I, I think. If everybody you're dealing with sort of knows that that's what you're going for, you, you, you sort of, as long as you believe in it, you believe in it and you're testing it and you're remaining open, but we might change. Like, let's all be mm. prepared. If investors are prepared for the, the inevitable pivots, if team members are, I think it makes it easier. And, and I think people will cut you the slack and sort of understand that your earlier excitement, you know, you've sort of, we wanted you to be excited, but but in fact we tried it and it didn't work. So we got to try something else. Yeah, balance very hard thing um, to to sort of um, sh- sh- do that gear shift. Yeah, yeah, well put. So I I, I want to I do want to get away and, and not you know I could ask you about a thousand more questions about the book and and there's a ton of great stuff in there that we didn't get a chance to go through, but I'm curious about, you know, we'll do one and see if we have time for one afterwards. We might have time for two, might have time for one, but I like the idea of you've seen so many startups over the years. You've seen so many, met so many founders. 
I'm curious as to how you would validate or like go about thinking about validating some startup ideas. So we get lots of startup ideas that tend to overlap applications at Tacklebox. And so I, I figured we'd you know, try some of those. The first one I want to talk through is uh, what I'll call like the gig economy for chefs. So the basic mm-hmm. idea that there are in a place, I'm in, I'm in New York City, you're in Boston. I think it'd probably work either place. We get a lot of this in New York. There are tons of chefs, tons of private chefs in New York who work in the evenings a couple nights a week and have free time. And people trying to figure out like, how can we get a chef to make like jambalaya on a Tuesday and be able to either deliver it to people or sort of fill in that in the gaps of that demand and supply. Um, So if you were an entrepreneur starting this idea, how would you think about validating it early? Yeah, so there's I've, I've run into both versions. There's two versions of this idea. One is we bring the chef to your apartment and they'll do yep. a dinner party. Um, the other is a dark kitchen. I, I don't know if mm. that's I, I think that's the term in some places. I, I can't remember if that's the UK version or the US version, but basically <laughs> licensed to um, do food prep, which is a regulatory issue, but basically a facility that will rent time to a chef and and you sort of have I mean a lot of these popped up during COVID, right? Because there was so much takeout. And, and, and so the gig chef is basically w- working in a facility that isn't, isn't a permanent um, restaurant, sort of shared with a lot of other chefs and, and they're sharing the delivery infrastructure. The first one's tricky because you can do lean testing here and see if people like the idea. Right. It's easy to it's easy to do this at a very small scale. So you can you can run the minimum viable product test um, um, and um, put out the word somehow, probably digitally, that you got this great chef and um, she can create the jambalaya and she'll come to your apartment. And, you know, essentially, essentially it's catering, um, but but it's you know, it's a special experience and um, you can do it. See if people will pay. Um, and, um, you can ask, you know, you can run a net promoter score test. I'm sure Mm. people have have familiar with this, but basically, would you refer this product or service to a friend, um, score of zero to zero to nine, zero to 10, I can't remember. Um, and, and, and there's some reliability to that, but the problem with this idea is people only have dinner parties every so often. Mm. And, um, and it's going to be a while before you see whether you have repeat purchase from that consumer and they're not going to want to do jambalaya over and over again. So, so you need a bunch of different chefs and it's going to be a while before you learn about the breadth of offerings that you need to sort of have a viable service before you figure out whether there's enough word of mouth referral. Somebody who came to that first dinner party wasn't the host, but you know, how likely are they you know, and then, so will the thing, will, will the word of mouth spread virally? You know, you can sort of, now you have to launch the business and start to track these things and, and it's mm. getting um, much more complicated. And, and I think the problem is you, you need, you need to run it for six months before you know, you've got a good idea, chef mm. in the house. The other thing is probably, you know, as long as you've got a licensed kitchen, um, easier to run um, 
and figure out through MVP style testing whether you're getting repeat purchase and, and whether it's viable. I mean, the economics are much easier to understand. I mean, it, it, they will be dependent on density, right? If you're sending those delivery people out, if, if you put sort of five meals into the bicycle um, as opposed mm. to one, you know, your cost is going to be, your delivery cost is going to be one fifth, but that can all be modeled, you know, sort of somebody with sharp pencil and an Excel spreadsheet can sort of figure that stuff out. And, and so, and, and, and I think it's easier the whereas the first idea, it's kind of hard to figure out how you make cu- potential customers aware of your offering. I mean, mm. like to whom do you advertise your your dinner party idea? You know, mm. the whole world, and not that many people are going to be in the sweet spot. Um, I think more people are in the sweet spot for for good takeout. But but both of these businesses suffer another problem, which is just relatively low barriers to entry. So mm. you know, again, the entrepreneur has to figure out. I mean, if you want to build a successful business, it's it's got to be you. You have to have some source of differentiation that is meaningful and and sustainable can't be copied easily and mm. and, and so that takes some thinking too so i, th- I think the punchline is you can get some upfront validation by running mvp tests you know you'd you'd probably want to go through the upfront customer discovery of talking to people about dinner parties for a while before you actually started running dinner parties Talking to people mm. about takeout for a while and what they love and hate be, be, before you start organizing the MVP. Mm. Well, holy crap! We should have just done that the whole time and told people to yeah. read the book. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's that's really helpful. That's such a good way of thinking about it. And that's like as you're talking through these things, it becomes so clear that this idea that seems like, well, oh, it'll just be sort of the Uber version of private chefs, but then the lifetime value is completely different and the the feedback loops are way longer and all of these things, the, the variables kind of become clear really quickly as to what you'd be up against. And, you know, and you, as you were talking through it in my head, I'm like, okay, how many pivots would I want to allocate for something like this? And it's probably, it's probably a five, six pivot business where you're, it's going to yeah, take you no, a while. I, I, had a, I had a team of very talented student entrepreneurs who launched this business. I mean, it was launched, this goes back by four or five years. Chefstro mm. was their name. And they ran mm. it for a long time. They were really, um, really nimble and smart and, and analytical, um, but scrappy. Um, mm. and, and I would say they probably did five or six pivots, just what you said, mm. uh, and, and eventually wow. threw in the towel. Huh. That's fascinating. Um, well, this we, we've sort of hit up against our edge. Um, this was fantastic. This was so great. Thank you so much for doing it. I would, I've got a list. I'd love to throw about 10 more of these ideas at you. Maybe if you've got a free hour someday, we'll do another yeah. one and I'll just throw ideas at you and yeah, hear, we, hear yeah. your thoughts on them. In, in the MBA program, we do see a certain set of ideas. I mean, basically when you get a bunch of 28 year olds in, in one place, um, that there's a certain predictability to, to what concepts they'll come up with. So uh, group travel planning, probably being at the very top of the list, you know, sort of w- we unmarried 28 year olds all want to go off to Cancun or Iceland or something like that. And boy, it's problem, you know, to, to uh, use, to use uh, Google Docs to sort of plan the whole itinerary, et cetera, et cetera. I've, seen is, that one, I've seen that one twice a year for the last 20 years. <laughs> that's one yeah we get that one as well i imagine it's probably predict would have been predictable by you that the the product i started at a business school was a dating app <laughs> <laughs> yep 
Yeah. Uh, and some of them work, you know, um, we, uh, and many of them don't, but, um, but, but we've, uh, Hinge was uh, one of ours from Harvard mm. Business School and um, uh, Coffee Meets Bagel. Um, yeah. So I used to sit across from the earliest we work, Coffee Meets Bagel, and I sat at the, shared a table during the early days. There um, you go. Anyway, well, Tom, this was fantastic. Thank you yeah, so much. Fine. Thank you for um, having really me. I really appreciate it. Talk All to right. you soon. Take care.